this lecture has been waiting for 30 years to be delivered. I've had a three-hour train journey. At the moment, I feel like I've aged along with the Children Act, so I'm really sorry. <laughs> so everywhere there's online, I hope you've had a cup of tea, but if you're friends of mine, you'll be into the gin and tonics, and I really wish I could join you. So, my lecture. Let's start off as we mean to go on. Right. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for waiting. Right, the anniversary of the Children's Act 1989. As any of you will know who are interested in this subject, it was uh, passed in Parliament in autumn of 1989. And part of my preparation for this lecture has been looking to see whether or not it stood the test of time. Just in milestones for you to consider, it's gone through six prime ministers, it's gone through six presidents of the family division, it has gone through various changes and permutations in terms of expert evidence. So we've had genetic disorders brought to light. We have had EDS brought to light. We have had advances in science that have meant the nuclear family that existed in 1989 is not now the norm in many ways. We have surrogacy. Sexuality is no longer binary. We have same-sex marriage. You can adopt without needing to be married. The degree to which our society has become freer and more diverse is part of what makes it worthwhile to be in the job I am and makes it worthwhile to know that you in the audience are still interested in listening and learning because that has been what the last 30 years has taught me. And when looking at what the changes in society have been, it's made me go back to the legislators' intention behind the 1989 Act to see if it has dealt with the challenges we have thrown at it. So, let me remind you, short history lesson about why it came into being. These three children are familiar to those of us that have worked in our industry for the last few decades. And even if you weren't around at the time when the cases hit the headlines, they should be names that are seared on your memory because no child should die when they can be saved and um, from uh, avoidable harm. Jasmine Beckford, Kimberly Carlisle, Kyra Henry, just three of the children that led in the late 1980s to cries from the press and public alike that effectively there was too much tolerance of parental failings and neglect. And if only we remove children sooner, then incalculable degrees of harm could be prevented. And therefore, it was right to remove children when there was an indication of risk. That meant that when there were some concerns about the way the various acts, of which there were five, uh, working in operation, there was little sympathy, really, to see whether there needed to be a whole-scale review. That was until... Cleveland. Cleveland represented the other side of the coin. Cleveland represented a series of families torn apart by unfounded suspicions that their children had been sexually abused. It wasn't just the fact that the children were removed on evidence that was later found to be flawed. It was at the stain of suspicion that slurried those families through the course of the prolonged investigations, damaged them irreparably in ways that we could never properly account for. The only good thing to come out of Cleveland was, one, a wholesale review of the guidelines that now govern our relationship and interviews with children, but two, it meant that 
the desire for reform could no longer simply be to be left with a number of committed campaigners with proposals allowed to gather dust in the dusty corridors of Whitehall. And so it came into being, the Children Act 1989. Let me remind you what it was attempting to replace. Care proceedings were modelled on criminal proceedings against a juvenile delinquent. That meant when you went to the juvenile court, you would see the local authority represented, you would see the child represented, but the parents weren't. It was assumed the parents would represent the child. Now, even on the faintest understanding about what we do in child protection, you can see how there's an immediate potential conflict of interest. Secondly, local authorities could assume parental rights over children in their so-called voluntary care simply by passing an administrative motion. No court hearing. Can you imagine the degree to which that could lead to abuses and miscarriages of justice? Thirdly, local authorities had no obligation to consult the child or the family about their decision. So having made a decision to take the child into care, that paternalistic state control over the child continued thereafter. So arrangements for contact, where the child should live, what school they should go to, were wholly within the province of the local authority. Why do family members work consulted? And that's an important consideration, because when you think a family is failing, how many other family members would step in to try to tide the family over that particular cusp of problem if they'd been consulted, or would come forward knowing that the option was the child would be taken into care? I am old enough to remember what it was like to practice in the days before the Children Act was passed. I remember going to juvenile courts, and what I can tell you, it was a scary prospect to be, because when you were going there for child proceedings, you were trying to fit child protection into a world that was designed for adults and guilt. You place a child in that concept in front of the magistrates, and it took an enormous mind switch for them to swap from a guilt issue to a need and support issue. Not only was that a difficult jump for them to do, but equally the environment in which you were trying to conduct the proceedings left you felt nothing short than intimidated. And if that's how you felt as a lawyer, God knows how the families felt. The chaos surrounding the system was such that I'd often go to a juvenile court in the morning, there'd be so much chaos trying to get our case on that the local authority would announce at 12 o'clock that we were off to the high court. And off we'd trot. In the afternoon, no difference in the facts, but the local authority had long since learned that going to the high court to seek wardship for the child was a more streamlined motion, got you in front of a judge of the highest caliber, and got you an outcome for the child that was far more easily accessible and understandable than it was in front of the magistrates. And so the route to wardship became a used, and I would say an overused route, to achieving an outcome for the child the one link, from my perspective, acting on behalf of those who were the respondents, was that the state was in control. That was the law that we practiced in before the Children Act. It needed changing root and branch, not simply tinkering with. I've reminded myself, by the by, about how many acts we were still having to manage at the time. There were five. Not one act being responsible for the whole of child protection and child in need and family support system. You had to jump between a 1933 act for some components, between a 1969 and the other, and so you never quite knew which particular stepping stone you were on and which you might slip off of. 
one of the purposes of the Children Act was to bring everything to do with a family and a child at the heart of that family into one all-encompassing provision that dealt with a child, and this is significant, not simply as a child who is in need of protection, but a child and a family that might need support in order to enable that family to remain whole. And that's why when you look at the Children Act, you shouldn't simply look at it as part of a child protection framework or as a private law framework. You need to look at all of the components because it's no accident of design that section one is the welfare of the child and all of the parts that follow thereafter are designed to seem into a way in which the family can support the child and if the family needs support, how the state has a duty to do so. It is a craftsmanship um, of ingenuity and intelligence, but at the heart of it, it was a child-friendly um, piece of legislature. So what happened afterwards? If that was the ethos, and you've heard I've signed up to it, what happened after the 1989 Act? Local authorities had a duty to promote the upbringing of children in need by the families so far was consistent with their welfare to the child themselves. Now, any of you that have been to the previous lectures will know that I am keen to make plain that a child's place should be with its family unless and until there comes a point by remaining in that family they are exposed to significant harm or the risk of significant harm. And that is a difficult balancing act. But one of the functions of the state is not to intervene in a paternalistic way to provide better care simply financially because it's easier for them to do so than the family that are struggling. And that is why this is so important, because it, it obliges the local authority under its um, various uh, provisions to provide support to those who are in need. Secondly, the principle the best place for the child is in their home, as we've just said, part three, schedule two, section 17. It comes with money. There is no point having an act that is simply part of an ethos if there is not funds behind it to make sure that those principles are translated into practice. Thirdly, parents no longer had to give notice before withdrawing their children from voluntary arrangements. So what was happening was that when parents couldn't cope, financially or otherwise, children were placed in care. In theory, for a short time, but that time could extend. A parent would have to give notice about wanting to take their child away from that system and therein lay a bureaucratic delay. Under the Children Act, no notice was required, and quite rightly so, because unless the state had actually gone to court in order to get an order that indicated that they were entitled to have and should have for the child's protection, an order through which they shared parental responsibility for the child, then why should they have any right to retain a child under their care when there is a parent ready and willing and wanting to receive that child back? So they were significant reforms, and effectively it started to mean that one had to look at the system of legislature, the system of justice, Article 8 rights and Article 6 rights, which weren't then known in the way we express them now, but basically condensing down to fairness, the right to have a fair trial, the right to live with your family unless that right is displaced by a need for protection. Those are the basic principles, so far as I take them from the Children Act, that mean a lot to me as a child protection barrister. Lastly, local authorities are no longer to assume parental respites over children through administrative resolution. That brings me back, doesn't it, full square with what I've just said. 
which is children are not there simply to have their rights to be with their family usurped by a group of bureaucrats in an office that think they know better. It needed changing. So, the reforms. Section 1 of the Children Act sets out three principles of fundamental importance. The welfare of the child is paramount. Delay is likely to prejudice the welfare of the child, and that's obvious. If you think about how a child's needs change, you as an adult may remain fundamentally the same from one year to the next. If you think about how you were last year, short of bereavement or divorce, but you know, you can't get over everything, then you are probably still the same type of person with the same feelings and thoughts and needs as you are now. For a child, compare a child that's five to how they were six, or even more so, one to two, and you think about what changes they've undergone in that process. You cannot let a child's time for decision-making drip away. It has to be at their timescales and not bureaucracies and not the adults. That's why delay is so critical and shouldn't be allowed to cause inadvertent harm to the child. Thirdly, the court shan't make an order unless to do so will be better for the child than making no order at all. Now, what does that mean? It means the end of paternalism. It means there has to be a positive advantage to the child in making an order, which requires us when we're in court to say what the advantages and disadvantages are. It's a timely reminder that when the court is exercising powers, it is exercising them by imposing them potentially on a family against their wishes, and therefore surely it's right that there must be a justification as to why that is happening. Key components of the Children Act, 1989. So, on the left, I've tried to break down what I think the core elements are in terms of first, Schedule 17, Part 3, Schedule 2, um, resources that goes to children in need to supplement their care. Section 20, why is that important? It's important because prior to the Children Act, when parents couldn't cope with a child, whether because of family breakdown or behaviours, or sometimes because they just couldn't afford to keep going, having a child received into care was seen as a stigma. And one of the purposes behind the Children Act was to make sure that that stigma was removed. So when a family was struggling before it got to a critical point, then they were able to say to the state, we need help. Help us now to get ourselves together. And the state was under a duty to do so. And that was meant to mean that there was going to be a partnership developing between the state and the family. No longer this oppressive... Um, bureaucratic approach to the family on the one side and the, minion, the, the <coughs> multitude of professionals on the other, but a working in partnership whereby the core concept was we respect your right to bring your child up. Your child needs you. And in order to make sure that we demonstrate our commitment to that ethos, we will support you to get over to this hump. But don't think we're giving up on you. It's a key component of partnership and you shouldn't forget it. The assessment is critical because I'll come back to that later. If a family is in crisis or there are concerns about them, the assessment can happen when the child is with the family and it must be done by social workers experienced and qualified and supported enough to do the important work that is required. So all of the parts on the left deal with the period for, for so long as the child is in the community. But what about those on the right? This is when a decision has been made that there needs to be a court determination of the child's welfare needs. So we have EPO, that's an emergency protection order. 
that can follow after a police protection order, but it's an indication that there's a crisis. Section 31, the threshold criteria. That is the section that I think has demonstrated the skill of the draftsman over the 30 years, because when I am sitting and I'm hearing the evidence and I'm trying to weigh up what decision I'm going to make and why, Section 31, with all of its various components, has shown it's able to adapt to society's changing needs. It is fluid, it is resonant with practicality, it's personal, and it positively directs your attention to what the child's particular circumstances are. It is the threshold that needs to be crossed before the state can uh, legitimately uh, argue that a child should be taken into care or that it should share parental responsibility or that it should have supervision over it. Paternalism and social engineering is something we are meant to have left behind. So a number of cases have come before the courts whereby the parent has a intermittent alcoholism or mental health issues. But the question is not whether or not they are intermittent alcoholics or whether they have mental health difficulties, but do those qualities impact significantly on their ability to bring up a child? You can't be perfect parents all the time. And you don't have to be parent, perfect parents all the time. The question is not whether or not you live like Rab Nesbitt with your straw, your, your string vest and your various cans all over the place. It doesn't really matter what your character is like if you are living in that way as an adult. The question is whether your character as a parent impacts negatively and significantly <coughs> negatively on a child. And if it doesn't, it's not my right to judge you. The fact that you may be a far-right proponent, the fact that you might want to wear a Save America and America is great cap, that's not justification for me saying your child should not be with you. I do wish you'd take the cap off, obviously, <laughs> but it's not a reason for me to take the child off of you. Division of responsibilities. The local authority is the agency which is responsible for delivering care and care plans to the child that they seek to have some type of shared responsibility over. That is not the function of the court. The court determines the order, but at the point that an order is made, they delegate decision-making in terms of its carrying out and functions to a local authority. Remember what I said about paternalism not being something that should be tolerated under the post-1989 Act. Of all the components in the Act, the thing that is most important to me is the concept that the child is an individual in its own right, with its own needs, which are addressed separately from its parents and its carers and those who may seek to argue between parents about where the child should be. Why do I say that's so important? It's because so far I have talked to you, because as any of you will know who followed my lectures, child protection is my passion as well as my profession, but because that's just as relevant in the privacy of your home as it is in the publicity and the difficulty when you're going to talk to social workers about your child's needs. Think about how far we've come. Pre-1989, you had custody and access orders. And if you remind yourself about why they came about, and it's worthy of so doing, you need to remember that at the beginning of the 20th century, when a couple were married, the father had all rights over the legitimate child. The mother had none. If the child was born out of wedlock, the mother had all rights over the child. If the couple were married, 
Upon divorce, particularly if there was adultery, it was highly unlikely that the mother would get custody of the children because of the way in which the courts took an adverse view upon conduct. That's where society's attitudes have changed because it's no longer a court of moral judgment, it should be a court of welfare. But the hangover of those ideas of custody and access carried through to 1989, and I want to use um, Lord Justice McFarlane's words to explain why they were so pernicious. So think about it in this way. When you talk about custody, it, that gives a strong connotation of possession and control. As he said, I might place my valuable goods into the custody of a bank manager. If I were a policeman, I might arrest you and place you in custody. Custody is a process of an arrangement that happens to things or people whose freedom of choice has been removed following arrest. If you think about custody in that way, where does that have a place in the arrangements for a child? And is that balanced by the word access? I think not, and I'm fortified because so does Andrew McFarlane say so. So rights of custody, what did that mean as he explained it? Again, the word access has strong physical connotations. I have a right of access across your land, or I wish to have access to the valuable goods that are in the custody of the bank. Again, if you look at the words custody and access, doesn't that say to you possession? And isn't that exactly what a child should not be? And so that is why, under the 1989 Act, Custody and access became words of the past, and instead you had residence and contact orders and the important concept of parental responsibility. Parental responsibility identifies not that you have a right over the child, but that you have a responsibility to that child, and that has got to be the way, surely, that parents think about having children and the way they therefore treat them. Residence and contact was the attempt to try to take away that idea of him and hers, <coughs> mine and yours. It's one of the areas in which I don't think the uh, application of the Act actually fulfilled the ethos of the drafters, because since they were talking about partnership, since they were talking about responsibilities, it was not part of their thinking, I believe, that we should... Um, up until 2014, it still ended up with a replicated situation where the person who was in possession of the child effectively had greater rates and, as um, Lord J Justice McFarlane said, ended up with, and this is a good quote, so listen to it, it marked the end of what I called the Catherine Tate approach to post-separation parenting. Okay where the parent who holds all the trump cards because the child is currently living with them simply shrugs her shoulders and says to the other parent who merely wants to see his child, am I bothered? This system, the law, now requires them to be bothered. They have a responsibility to be bothered, and if they persist in advocating from that responsibility, they can expect all those they encounter in and around the court system to bring them up short. And why was he saying that? The child arrangements order just clicked on, I'll get it back in a moment, but if I do, I lose the whole of the presentation, so you need to bear with me. The child arrangements order is effectively a way of describing where the child is, I shall spend time with. It's a way which is meant to describe neutrally the type of periods the child spends with one parent, one carer, and the other. 
it is going right back to what the original ethos of the Children Act was and therefore a step in the right direction. There is a fly in the ointment, which I'll come to towards the latter part of the lecture, but bear in mind what the ethos was. So moving on to the next section of the lecture, where has the Act fulfilled its ethos or floundered, bearing the weight of society's change that it has had to equip with? So evolving concepts. You remember I spoke at the beginning of the lecture about the fact that we no longer think of sexuality as simply binary. Equally, we no longer think in terms of family groupings, being a man or a woman, or being limited to simply a nuclear family. And we also can see with the fact that someone's sexuality and their gender, um, uh, their the concept of their gender and where they should be can also change. And this was a case which I think illustrates the degree to which our court justice system and the Children Act have fused seamlessly in order to try to do the right thing. So REM was a 2017 case, as you can see here, a transgender woman brought an application for contact with her five children after being forced to leave the North Manchester ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, having been shunned as a result of being trans. In the first instance, Mr Justice Peter Jackson, as he then was, he's now in the Court of Appeal, decided that the community's threat to ostracise the children posed a risk of psychological harm to them, such that it was not right that they should have direct contact with um, their mother, and therefore her contact with them was restricted to letterbox contact. That was taken to the Court of Appeal. They overturned the decision. And it's what they said and how they applied the child's welfare principle, which I believe truly shows that this act and this particular application of it has withstood the challenges thrown. What are you meant to do in that situation? The drafters would have had no concept back in 1988. They would be dealing, or the Act would be asked to deal with a transgender religious issue whereby they would need to think about both the acceptability of a man's transition to a woman, what that would mean for the children and understanding that their father was now there um, performing to them and relating to them as a woman, that that would have religious connotations and there would be a schism, not just within the family, but in the community in which the family previously existed. These cases require the wisdom of Solomon to try to adjudicate upon. And for anyone who thinks it's easy being a judge, for anyone who thinks it's easy trying to come to a decision which is going to be in the child's best interests, their welfare being their paramount, paramount consideration for the rest of their minority, is really... Um, existing in some type of parallel universe if they conceive this as being anything other than a heart-rendingly difficult decision to come to and arrive at. But what did they do? They took the approach that the judge hearing the matter must act as a judicially reasonable parent, judging the child's welfare by the standards of reasonable men and women of today in 2017. And it's the way they described our society that I think gives me most hope. They described our society and the reasonable parent as someone receptive to change, broad-minded, tolerant, easygoing, and slow to condemn. If that's a symbol of parenthood, it's one that I think we should all aspire to, and I um, was heartened to see that that's the terminology that the Court of Appeals used. What they said was the judge had failed to address head-on the human rights and discrimination issues that arose in the case, as he should have done in asserting 
even secluded religious communities within society are not above the law of the land. And that's got to be right. If you think about some of the cultural practices that we have had to grapple with over the course of the last 30 years, I've dealt with cases where there has been witchcraft practices imported into the United Kingdom, and Doki, where children have ostensibly been feared to have been possessed by spirits, and the family, elders, and community have devised ways in which those spirits could be exercised. Victoria Klimby was one of the victims of such a misguided belief. That's at one end of the spectrum. We don't say in this country, do we, that that's acceptable, even though it's an imported belief from another continent. Equally, physical punishment, excessive physical chastisement. We do not stand back when excessive physical chastisement is used against a child, because in a different country that would be acceptable. So just in the way in this case, the Court of Appeal was saying, we do not give in to views which are um, outside the band of norms which we generally in the United Kingdom accept as appropriate, so we do in other communities too. So I think that was success, and I think it, it shows the degree to which those who apply the Children Act, and principally Section 1, do so in a far more rounded way and are able to do so than the legislator contemplated, but can do so because of the width of freedom afforded to them under the Children Act. So let's turn on some other aspects, really, which go to some of the failures in terms of the fact that children do still become abused. There are still family arguments, and I've tried to analyse whether that's a fault of the legislation or whether that's a fault of humankind or whether it's a fault of the system. And I'm going to throw some of them at you to see where we are on them. So, evolving concepts. Do you remember this headline? Model pupils fleeing to be brides of ISIS. 2014 marked the announcement that a caliphate had been established. 2015 started to reveal to the court children who, acting autonomously, wanted to join the fight. Equally, families who wanted to join and become part of that religious political community. And so a new breed of cases, a new breed of risk, of harm, started coming through the courts of the United Kingdom. And when one looked to see how that could be managed within the Children Act, it didn't quite fit the need. These children, these three in particular, were, didn't fit beyond, under the category beyond parental control. They weren't at risk of harming people. They were making a choice, which was in many circumstances, one they had made in total seclusion and secrecy from their parents, knowing their parents would stop them from going if they were aware of it. So where's the harm in the parent then? Where's their culpability for the risk that the child was therefore exposing themselves to by going on a plane and seeking to leave the jurisdiction? Did that fit within what the Children Act really thought of as Section 31 criteria? And the answer was no, which was why we had Mr Justice Hayden who looked to see what the armoury of protective measures were that he had to call at his disposal as a High Court judge, some of which had effectively been thought to be consigned to the dusty corridors um, of the, um, after the red carpet, having uh, the 1980 Act, 1989 Act passed. And, sorry, I'll go, I would go back, but I can't. Um, and so he contemplated the use of wardship and used it really constructively, wardship being the light touch Wardship, for any of you that aren't familiar with the concept, is where the child is made a ward of the court. The court acts as a corporate 
parent, a bureaucratic parent in relation to the child, but they can delegate the care of that child to either a state or a body, but no significant decision can be made for that child without return to the court and the court's approval. So it's that fine balance, isn't it, between the court being there to be the arbiter of need, but not literally taking the child back behind the red corridor and up with the judge in his car back to his judge's lodgings, but organising a way in which that child's safety can be protected in the interim, but always leaving the door open for the parties to come back to court when particular decisions needed to be made. Wardship used to be called the Royals Royce jurisdiction for absolutely fundamentally good reasons because it's such a bespoke system of protection for the child. It was thought to be obsolete in many ways before the, when the Children's Act was passed, but it shows how when you're a judge dealing with unexpected levels of harm in a way that you'd never contemplated, you have to look beyond simply the legislation that you have to see how you can remedy it. Does that mean, though, that the Children Act have failed? I think not. Not because the wardship provision was there and had to be used, but often in these cases, once that crisis was passed, the case then passed back into the classic 1989 Children Act jurisdiction. <coughs> So I think I see it not as a failure of the Children Act, but as part of recognising that you should act in partnership with various different elements of the way the law can work when your goal is to deliver the best you can to a child in need. So another example. You saw the sad list of names I brought up at the beginning of the lecture. So does that mean when we remember Jasmine Beckford, Tyra and Henry, and we remember Cleveland, that we've now got the balance right? No. Remember Peter Colony? Baby P. Remember Poppy Worthington? And remember Victoria Columbia, because those names should not be allowed to be forgotten. When you look at those names, what does it make you feel? I heard you take an intake of breath there. Does it make you think that the law has failed the, chil the children, that the Children's Act has failed those children? What about, let's see. This situation, Hertfordshire County Council and AB 2018, in the lecture notes, I've been very keen to give you up-to-date resources so that this is a lecture which is bang up-to-date with what's happening, and this is one you need to know. Remember section 20, that core principle I said where it should be partnership between the state and the family with no coercion. This is a case in 2018 which rocked our understanding about how Section 20 was being used in practice. There were um, two children involved here. Um, they had been in accommodated care for a significant proportion of their life, and when I tell you how long, this is what you need to know. One child had been in care under Section 20, which is by consent accommodation, for eight years, the other for nine years. One child had been accommodated for the entirety of their life. Their mother, when she gave birth, was 14. It was her ostensible consent to their accommodation that had meant that they remained in the care of the state for eight and nine years respectively, with the local authority never having brought their cases to court, even after the mother said she wanted them back. How outrageous is that? 
Mr Justice Keane went through the decision-making process. The degree to which that local authority had failed those children and the mother is difficult to comprehend if you need to look at any case to understand where the balance of harm lies. To contrast with the situation with Peter Connolly and others, you need to look at this case. The authority's failure to give consideration to GH's mother's age when she um, gave her consent had had a fundamental impact upon their ability to take it as informed consent. In retaining the child after she'd given notice that she sought an intention to have them back, they had acted unlawfully and retained the child unlawfully in their care. Why did that happen? Let me go back to those two examples. So let's go back, shall we, to be Peter Connolly and Victoria Columbia. Was that a failure of the act? If so, how could it have been? Because the reason those children died was because the local authority hadn't taken protective measures to bring their cases before the court to seek removal of them. In the case we've just discovered, that we just talked about, that was a case not before the court when it should have been. What the balance of power establishes under the Children Act and the way we govern ourselves is a distinction between the court's responsibility to adjudicate fairly and properly upon those matters that are brought to it for decision-making. But it delegates to the local authority and to the, to the state in its bureaucratic functions the ability to protect children and to keep an overseeing eye on what their needs are. And that's got to be a balance that's right to adopt, surely. So if there are failings in those cases, and clearly there are for two different reasons, is that the fault of the legislation? Or is that a result of what is a chronic situation of underfunding, allied with disrespect for the social work profession, allied with a lack of the support for it and a lack of managerial support in order to make sure the right decisions are arrived at? Is it fair to blame the social workers for those failures because a social worker is on the hard line of what decisions have to be made. They're criticized if they don't take action and a child is harmed, and they're criticized if they do take action and remove a child without good reason. It's a difficult job being a social worker, and it's certainly not one that I think I'd have the stomach or the heart or the strength to do. Equally, so far as the family is concerned, they're entitled to say, I get it's a difficult job, but you need to do the job to the best of your ability, and I'm not prepared to tolerate a standard that's less than acceptable. And so what does a social worker do in that situation? Because we should have a system not, such a, not simply of respect for the social worker doing their job, but a system of support that means they get the mentoring and the type of training that entitles them to go in to review the files and to know what the outcome is. When the Children Act was brought into force, there was the most comprehensive, well-resourced and funded system of training for guardian ad litems that I think any of us had ever seen invested in the social welfare state before. We have come this far over 30 years with the money draining the system dry, and it is therefore no surprise to me that we have a service that we pay for which is creaking and breaking its seams, and these, I think, are the consequences of that as opposed to simply casting a finger of blame at the individual professionals involved. Because it comes down to the constant query, doesn't it? Where's the money? You need money for training so that social workers can make the right decisions. You need the money for community resources so that when there's a need identified, a child can be given the resource that's needed. And then you need the money for the legal aid in order to make sure that when things are going awry, there are legally aided lawyers there 
qualified and able to assist the family and the child in order to achieve some type of resolution. And the court service needs money in order to make sure that when a case comes before it, there's enough judges to hear it. <coughs> there is no magic money pot, but if there is no money flowing into the system, mistakes flow out. Two examples of that, and it's worth, I think, remembering what they are. Uh, one from James Mumby, our former president, which encompassed five decisions taking us from 2016 to 2018, called WeX, but it's a case that hit the newspapers, which you might remember, which is when a child who was in critical need of going into a secure unit because she was at risk of suicide but also harming others, there wasn't a unit in the land that could take her. In this particular case... Mr. James, uh, Sir James Mumby was faced with a situation where the advice in relation to this child was she will kill herself. That was the advice from the unit. The local authority who had assumed care of this child, so this isn't a parental failure, this is a child who the local authority have taken responsibility for, and in exercising that parental responsibility gave the court three care plans, all of which involved the child returning to the community. The Guardian opposed it, Mumby was appalled and it hit the press because he asked the nation publicly, how can this be right? He said so in this way, should it be right that I am left with no opportunity and no option for this child but the fact that when she is discharged into the community, I cling on to the hope that the police will have the occasion to take her into custody before she's able to cause herself irreparable harm. Is that really the best the care system and the family justice system can offer? Is it a coincidence that after that went to press, a place was found in a secure unit? I think not, because if any of you are interested in child mental health, you'll know how few places there are and how when a child is in need of psychiatric detention and assistance, they are often placed, if they are placed at all, a long way away from their family, which further imposes upon their capacity to renew and repair and to heal. Is that the only instance? where, by virtue of publicity, lack of resources means that we are harming children? I say not. Mr Justice Keane gave a speech um, to St Ives Chambers in 12th of October 2018, making this point on a, not the same, but a related instance. He said thus, During the course of my long vacation duty in late August 2018, a circuit judge in the Midland Circuit listed four cases in front of me. Each one involved an application by the local authority to separate a mother from their newborn child. In each case, that situation could be avoided if a place could be found for the mother and baby in a mother and baby unit. The case was coming before me to decide whether or not the child should be removed. Case number one, a placement. Suddenly found because a high court judge is hearing the case. Found the day before. His suspicions were raised, but he was relieved. Case number two. The afternoon before the case was due to be listed before him, a mother and baby placement was found. The following week, I heard the third case. The afternoon before that case was listed before me, an appropriate placement was found and approved. Two days later, the fourth case came before me. On the morning of the hearing, a placement was found and I approved it. He asked the question, which I think is the pertinent one, which is, why is it, one, there was such a scarcity of resources, but two, 
when the matter was coming in front of a high court judge, a place was found. What does that say about all those cases where you don't have a high court judge to hear the matter and where the local authorities say we have no resources? And I don't blame the local authority for saying they don't have any because there aren't enough. But if the consequence of not enough means that we are separating a mother from a newborn child in a situation where the harm to the child does not require it, then that's where lack of resources really does impact fundamentally on our um, rights, Article 8 rights to have our families and to have the chance to bring them up. So why is that happening? Undermining the reforms. April to June 2018, the proportion of disposals where neither the applicant nor respondent had legal representation was 38%, an increase of 21% in um, April to June 13. And the proportion of cases where both parties had legal representation dropped from 16 to 19% in the same period. Now, that's talking about the situation where formerly in private law, parents, carers, would have been entitled to legal aid, and had they had legal aid, they could have gone to solicitors and they could have taken advice upon the type of cases they were dealing with. And they could have decided whether the issue between them was so serious that they needed to go to court. With the passing of LASPO 2012, and the legal aid deserts that have been caused, there is no longer that ability to seek legal advice. And so, as has been pointed out, again, by Mr. Justice McFarlane, the task of adjudicating fairly between uh, parties has been made more difficult by the removal of legal aid and the very substantial rise in the number of litigants who appear in person. For them, rather than going to a solicitor and receiving sad advice on the merits of the case, and in all probability being referred to mediation rather than court, the first port of call has now become the court office with an attempt to issue an application for an order. That is not an appropriate use of the court office's time, but the impact on it, on the way the judges have to deal with their diaries, is immense. Because you can't create more judicial time out of some type of vortex. They only have a certain number of court hours. The court is only open for a, so, a short number, of, uh, a certain number of times. So if they have to deal with more unrepresented uh, litigants in front of them, then that will have an impact on time available for other cases. It is overwhelming a family justice system that is already creaking at its seams. And so these cuts have a direct impact, not simply on what happens in private law cases, but what happens in public law cases where the need to have a hearing determined with speed and to be resolved within 26 weeks is being impacted upon because there simply aren't enough judges to go round. One of the other areas I think it's worth exploring is the child's voice and whether or not we're effectively hearing it. One of the lectures I gave previously was asking whether or not by placing a child's voice at the heart of the legislation, we were doing any more than paying lip service to their right to have heard. Yes, it is right that in public law proceedings, a child is a separate party, and with that comes the allocation of a guardian, and with that comes the allocation of a qualified solicitor for them. In private law proceedings, in appropriate cases, a child can become a separate party, but that's far more limited. But in how many instances, in particular in public law, does the child really get their voice heard, rather than being heard through the guardian or the solicitor, even though their voices, their, their wishes, contrast significantly with what is recommended in their best welfare interests? And one of the questions I pose to our legal fraternity is whether or not we have subconsciously adopted a paternalistic approach 
to the child's place in the courtroom in circumstances where there's a legitimate reason why they should have separate representation. And so the court has the disparities between the guardian advocating what's in their best interest and the child advocating for what they think is in their best interest and the court coming to a transparent and clear conclusion. I think that's one area where we could do better. So, are, is the act fit for purpose? Now, in the lecture notes, which would be relieved to hear for those of you who are desperately scribbling away, will be available when you leave the room, they cover this lecture in a far more coherent way than this rather truncated, late, harassed lecture has been able to deliver tonight. And part of that process goes through parts one to four to give you the examples. And this lecture, the oral delivery, is not intended to replace reading the lecture notes. This was intended to be a public-friendly exposition of what I take in my very personal way to be the key components and changes of the Children Act. But the document which is outside is the one which I think bears the full weight of scrutiny because that's where I've piled my heart and soul into. But if there's any similarity between the two of them, it's what I will say to you now, which is, is the Children Act fit for purpose some 30 years on? To which I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes. It's fit for purpose because it's been able to use its basic structure under Section 1, Section 31, Section 17 and Schedule 2 in order to understand that we need to embrace a changing concepts of society in order to deliver to the child what that child's welfare needs. Where it is failing is not because the ethos is flawed, but because the ethos with which it was introduced required it to be funded both in the public sector and the court service so that it wasn't simply aspirational but could deliver the goods to the family when it needed, deliver the services to the community when they needed to be called upon, could deliver the training to the social workers and the professionals at the hard line, and could deliver the funding to the lawyers and to the court service to make the right decisions. It's that absence of funding which is making the Children Act struggle to deliver upon the principles it was crafted to design. And so why do I say that? It comes around full circle, really. I started this lecture by saying how our society had become so much more diverse over the course of the last 30 years, and rightly so. If I look to see what I've learned over the last 30 years, I look to see the medical cases I've done. I am in awe about the degree of advancements we've made in genetic science. I am staggered by the value that experts bring to the proceedings that we have. I am alarmed and frightened that we can no longer the, get the experts in the private, in the public domain, because legal aid simply can't pay them the fees that they are entitled to. In the absence of funding for experts, we risk miscarriages of justice. In the absence of funding for social workers, we risk errors in judgment and miscarriages of justice. Without adequate funding for mental health services, without adequate funding for families in need, we run the risk of a miscarriage of justice. And fundamentally, without an adequate resource system for the courts who administer justice, the lawyers who devote their time to try to achieve the best outcome for the parties, whoever they are, we risk miscarriages of justice. And quite frankly, the situation cannot continue much longer. So that's my roundup. If there are gaps in the legislation, and there is one I spotted, which is in the lecture handouts, then I think we can forgive the drafters of the Children Act for that omission. 
I think we should, rather than look to see where the flaws are, look to see where the ethos has gone right and what we need to do 30 years later to make sure that we can bring it to fruition because we can't afford another 30 years where children and families and the professionals who seek to serve them are left waiting to do the job they can for lack of money. Thank you very much. <laughs>